Salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven Drool, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s can rock. This episode is part one of a chat I had with Ian Brown, the drummer of Coquitlam, British Columbia's Matthew Goodband. So, can you kind of walk us through uh, the origin story of the Matthew Goodband? Okay. Yeah, the origin story. <laughs> yes. Well, it's a funny story because there's an element of sort of, it's just a little bit fluke. I mean, fluky that we would all end up being in, the, in a band together, really, because um, Matt had a band before us that was called also the Matthew Good Band mm. that he had with, uh, with a couple of, I don't know where he found these guys, but there were like a couple of teenagers that were the rhythm section and, <laughs> and, some, and, a, and a, a cellist, Judy Falls, oh, wow. who played on the first album with us and a pianist huh. his name was Steve anyway and they were playing shows like he you know Matt always had a ton of songs like he, he was always really prolific and even in that time he was writing it a lot so he had a cassette you could probably still find it, it it's like a cassette of it's probably got 25 songs on it you know what I mean of, of, of them playing that band hmm. and then at one point this is before I, I, I had no idea any of this was going on, but I was, I had met Jeff Lloyd at, uh, at Undertone, the rehearsal space in Vancouver that used to be in the Canada packing plant. And, uh, I was playing in a band called the Spiders, which was a, a full on punk band. Like we used to play punk shows. I was not what you would call punk rock, particularly. I was like a college educated musician basically but I, I just a jazz I'm sort of like a jazz guy really I mean I went to music school you know came up through the music program of my high school and then went to college and I was trying to make a have a career in music basically right but in the meantime I was playing with my friends in this punk band and it, it was it was fun so I was doing that and we were rehearsing in this rehearsal space where Jeff Lloyd worked and apparently, like when Matt was on the road with this other group, he got into a huge fight with the, the rhythm section guys who were <laughs> apparently like devout Christians, apparently, like they were like really religious. Huh. And he got into some kind of ideological <laughs> impact, these guys, and, you know, first the rhythm section and in typical Matt style, called the first bass player that sprang to mind, which I guess was Jeff Lloyd, <laughs> and said, do you know any drummers? And for reasons still unknown, unknown to me now, like Jeff Lloyd suggested me because he'd heard me through the wall. <laughs> at space. And that's how, that's how we ended up going and jamming with Matt and Judy, the cellist and the piano player. And we did that first record last the ghetto astronauts with that lineup and then dave Gen came on as a, as a he was only playing organ he came in and played some keys but we you know jammed up all that stuff on the first record without dave basically more or less you know like i don't i don't remember dave really being there until we got into the studio i'm sure he must have though i feel like he must have been there before that but he didn't really bring a guitar and an amp into the mix until kind of closer to the 
know, working on a song for um, the next record, Underdogs. Now, had you um, known Matt personally before that introduction or before Jeff recommended you or had you known of him or... He knew me. I, I didn't know him. I had mm. never, I, I couldn't place him. We went to the same high school, but it, we didn't go in, in the same years. Uh. So our high school was massive. It was like a two grades. And I, I remember it being something like 1,800 students. So it would be really? like 900 students per grade. It was only two grades, right? So 11 and 12. And so when I was in my first semester of grade 11, he was staying for an extra semester. So he's two years older than me, or whatever, right? So mm. I had friends that were older than me in, in high school, but you know, I don't, I don't, I never really remember meeting him in high school. But he remembers seeing me because I, on a dare, ran for student uh, council, and I had to do a presentation in front of the school, basically. And I think that's how he knew me was uh. from seeing me at this thing. And I was kind of ad libbing, like I think I basically kind of kind of ad-libbed a speech, basically. <laughs> and uh, and it went over pretty well. And I think that's why he knew me. I don't, I don't, I don't think... He was never in music in the high school where I, I was like in all the bands huh. and all the choirs and all that crap. Interesting. So we didn't meet through music uh, circles at all. And in fact, his friend circle, I didn't really know much about either. They were like real Coquitlam people, whereas I, I lived in New West. I went to this high school because... Uh, it was French immersion. I, my parents had put me in French immersion, but I lived out. I always lived far away from the school I was going to, which was sort of not amazing. Right, exactly. Yeah. So with it, I didn't really, I didn't really have much contact with Matt. But for some reason, I think probably when Jeff recommended me to come in, he probably knew who I was, huh. and that probably gave me some kind of a bit of recognition. Now, when um, you know Jeff recommended you, and you guys had that first meeting together, was it always? Matthew Goodband from the start, or was it ever a conversation about finding a, a band name that didn't have his name in it? Yeah, we, we, we did. I do remember having that conversation. He wanted to change the name and have a, have a name. Hmm. And, and it was basically, you know, I, I, I think back at that moment, I think I should, I should have tried a little harder <laughs> to come up with something, but we were so, I, I, I wouldn't have been able to come up with anything. It was. I think we kind of bandied around a few names, but it didn't really go anywhere. You know what I mean? I think right. it was probably, if he'd wanted to change the name, I'm sure it probably would have happened, I guess. But uh, yeah, we did have that conversation, and it probably would have been better if we had changed it. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. For everybody, actually. So there's not a lot of shared writing credits that you, you're a part of on the Matthew Good Band kind of discography, but there is one on uh, Ghetto Astronauts' Alabama Hotel Room that you share um, credit on. Can you talk about um, how that song developed and kind of your role in helping to write it? Well, it's funny because I think like we, we obviously had a lot of input, especially in the first three albums. Like we mm -hmm. we jammed a lot of stuff up and, and uh, it could probably be considered writing in some other groups. You'd, you'd consider right. cutting people into more stuff. But he kind of like he had a publishing deal very early on with the mm. MI. So he was always very aware of uh, trying to keep his, like, he'd already signed away 50% of his songs, basically, right, to, to you know, my publishing. Oh, okay. So he was already kind of in that mindset of, like, okay, well, he wanted to kind of, he wanted us to be, like, feel like a band, and he wanted us to be. So, anyway, he, he, he basically cut us into one song per record, and it didn't always oh. end up being, felt like I had the most input, you know what I mean? Oh, I see. So, Alabama Motorum, I mean, geez, I don't even, I think he probably gave us that, uh, 
a nod for that one because it was such a rhythm section focused song. Mm. Like the bass and drums are so integral to the feel of it, for better or worse. Right. You know, like uh, it's, a, it's a pretty wacky. It reminds me of um, Primus or something. <laughs> Jeff was really into Primus at the time, and it was like I, I just it was sort of a funny groove. And I mean, none of us had ever been to Alabama. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I think, but yeah, later on, like, I, I can remember, like, I actually think I contributed a chord to Hello Time Ball, like, in the chorus. Huh. Actually, like, he had three chords of the chorus, and I'm like, wait, this is the fourth chord, and he's like, oh, and yeah, of course, yeah, right. <laughs> but then he gave me a, a cut of one of the other ones. Like, of Rico, uh, yeah. Or off Rico, off Underdogs, Rico, sure. Rico, exactly, Rico, Rico, yeah, which wasn't as big a song, right? But I always kind of thought, like, ah, damn, you know, like, you know, I, I wish it was kind of more reflective of what actually was happening. Because, I mean, nobody ever told me what to play. So all of our parts were totally our own. So, yeah, and some of the, I mean, I, but none of us were sitting at the piano. He was the writer, you know what I mean? Right. We didn't have to give a key of it, really. You know what I mean? But it, it's kind of nice to have a little slice of, of some of it. Yeah. I, think, I think Matt kind of tried to play both sides of the fence a little bit on that oh. one. Like, I think he early on wanted to kind of make the, make us feel like we were part of a project that was collaboration, partly because he couldn't pay us, right? Like we, we, we were, we were on board. This is the first guy I'd ever met that really had any serious network or sorry, net, um, industry attachments, like a publishing deal with somebody that had no idea. I'd never met anybody that was signed to a label that was, or, you know, up and coming that, you know, you know, my publishing had thought this guy's a good writer. They were, they were putting money into his promotion and all that stuff, paying for recordings. And uh, it's actually kind of interesting to think about in hindsight, actually, how much they developed uh, us and him as a, as a writer and as a, as us as a recording group. You know, like they really, um, you know, they paid money for us to go and demo stuff. And then they kind of were always waiting to hear better songs that could be singles and always kind of pushing him to write better, you know, single type songs. And uh, they were really patient, really. I mean, I mean, but I think that's how they did it back then. Really. They, they would actually find somebody that they thought had a lot of potential and then they would actually spend a year or two putting in a fairly decent amount of money to try to push them onto another level. Yeah. Were they involved in kind of helping get, astronauts made or was that completely DIY between kind of the four of you guys? Well, that was the thing is that we never, you know, EMI always footed the bill, but they just weren't willing to spend a lot of money to do it. So we weren't contributing our own money, but we weren't getting paid. You know what I mean? Right. We weren't right. high positions, uh, but we were also kind of along for the ride. Like it was like we, I, somebody told me actually, well, I think, well, Dave Gann actually has more of a sense of, business side than I do. I, I kind of, in my hazy recollection, I was just, it was all just a blur while it was happening. It was kind of hard to know what was going on. But but uh, as far as I can understand, it was basically like EMI kept trying to get Matt to come up with enough songs to make an album, basically, that they felt was going to be, or I think maybe it was like Matt really wanted to make an album because he was writing so much. Hmm. But he was pushing EMI to give him the money to be able to record an album. And EMI would pay for us to demo songs, but they didn't really want to foot the bill for a record before they felt like he had the singles. You see what I mean? Right, right. So I think he basically said, okay, we'll make, we'll make a record for whatever it is that you'll give us. 
and it ended up being, you know, five grand or something. Hmm. And, uh, which was like an insanely low amount for the time when, you know, this is when digital, digital was just only starting to happen, like where you could record on something other than an analog tape machine in a big studio. Right. Uh, so we found a guy, John Shep, who had a, a project studio with digital tape machines. And I think as far as I know, I mean, it's, it's pretty early on. I mean, it's not really that early on because there are records that were digitally recorded like 10 years before that, but it's still, still early on. Like it doesn't last week. We got a last month is record on ADAT, which you'd be hard pressed to try to find an ADAT machine nowadays. Right. Mm-hmm. They look like VCRs. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, that's, I think that it basically came down to budget. Like Matt was really keen to, to make a record partly because we had established our band as being a, a we, we had some chemistry and we were able to, it, it was exciting, you know, that we could back him up and it, he had so much energy and Jeff was all like, we were a really good three piece unit. And then with, you know, Dave came in on last week or last notes, but that first record, we, it was really like more like a three piece really. Hmm. And, uh, and then, and Matt was playing acoustic guitars and he was still kind of a folky. So he was playing acoustic guitars through pedals and things like that. Kind of a weird thing. So there's no electric guitar on Last Big Other Western. That's amazing, yeah.
So once that record was kind of done, um, how like how how hard did you kind of promote it, tour it? Did you guys just go back and forth across Canada a few times? Did you dip down to the U.S. at all? Or? We hardly ever went down to the states, like hmm. through the entire career of the group, wow. uh, or at least our part of it anyway. Yeah, but uh, the first record, I, I, I'm trying to think. Like we were really trying to break into Toronto, like t- Toronto radio was the hmm. was the kind of goal because. Yeah, we just played a lot of shows around here. We might have done a trip into the... I, I remember us doing a, a, some shows in, like, Jasper and Banff and things like that, and probably Calgary, you know, Calgary, Edmonton, Alberta. May, I think we may have... I don't think we made it to Winnipeg. We may have. Hmm. I don't remember us going all the way across on that album. I don't know if we did. We may have. We may have. Right, right. I definitely remember us going and playing the Athabasco Hotel in Jasper, and that's mm-hmm. when Dave was with us, and when he started playing more guitar but he did have the key the keyboard and was playing a lot of playing when we were playing a lot of lots of the ghetto astronauts material that trip at what point did private get involved in on the back of ghetto astronauts private was later it, it, uh, last of the ghetto astronauts basically was just on its own it it, it didn't really um, it was dark town that had the, the imprint on it right which was uh. our manager at the time started that imprint oh, okay so that's a that's a totally de- i mean Besides the fact that EMI basically paid, you know, it was their money that would use to record it. But besides that, uh, it was a totally independent, uh, independently released thing. It wasn't on any label until they got, you know, kind of included in a package to be put on a, a, label, a label later on kind of thing, right? Like I think Universal owns it now. But yeah, Private, Private was later because it was like, the one, the one that you're, the, the one that got that was part of Private was Underdogs because we we got on the strength of Last of the Ghetto Astronauts. Like we still didn't get any singles off Last of the Ghetto Astronauts on Toronto radio. Hmm. They didn't touch anything like Last of Simplistic White Walls or the other one you mentioned, Alabama Motel Room. Neither one of them made it onto Toronto radio. They were very reluctant. It was really hard to break into Toronto radio as a Vancouver band. You could get on ninety nine point three the Fox here. And they would, they would play you and stuff, and you could play their events and, and things. Actually, kind of an amazing time to be a local band in Vancouver because you could get on radio and it would be like a big radio station. It wasn't like independent radio. Or, but then if you wanted to get into 
you know, Toronto radio, then I think EMI hired a radio promoter, this guy Bobby Gale, who is a classic old school music tape person that hmm. probably doesn't exist anymore. They probably don't have any music prom- or radio promoters nowadays, you know? Right, right, man. But, uh, yeah, I was uh, basically on the backs of, on, of, of that, and then we, we, we signed a P&D deal with, not Universal, it was like A&M at the time. They didn't really want to fully sign us, so they did. They did this thing where they they would give us some money, but then we retained most of the most of the rights to uh, and the ownership. We owned the master to underdogs, huh. and so then when underdogs did well, and we owned the master, this is something that basically Matt decided later on that we we, we as a band didn't own the master, but he did own the master, which is a, was a point of contention, but. Uh, we we owned it as a as a group in our estimation and our understanding, and that was what gave us the ability to leverage when we went to private, and then private signed us with that album. They they remixed songs off of it and stuff, and they were going to do a big release in the states. And then that label folded, and they had to buy us out of that breach of contract, basically, right? That they, and then that was basically I think how we ended up owning the master. This was they were trying to. They were, yeah, it's, 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 I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little hazy on it. How yeah, it no, played out. Sure. It was like, uh, it, it, I think it was basically private. Private didn't happen until later. Anyway. It was like, it was on underdog. In between uh, Ghetto Astronauts and Underdogs, you guys did do an EP called Ray Gun, in which you recorded or re-recorded Haven't Slept in Years from Astronauts. I'm curious why the decision to re-record that particular song. I thought the, you know, the original was fantastic. And what was lacking for you guys or for Matt? It's funny. I kind of I kind of I, I noticed that again not too long ago because somebody sent me the the whole uh, discography on on vinyl, which I totally recommend. It sounds terrific. It, awesome. it really does sound, I think, quite a bit better than CD. Actually, it's uh, yeah. I know. I, I'm I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think we just didn't. We thought it was like. I think we thought it was too hyper. Like mm-hmm. it was too, and we wanted to make it heavier. And I think we brought Dave in, and he was playing. Now we have this full dual guitar assault, like a, right. a dual electric guitar, thick chords and heaviness. And you know, we were getting into that realm of wanting to be like a heavy band as opposed to just sort of uh, whatever Last of Ghetto Astronauts. In which I really like that album. I really think it's like there's some there's something really genuine and very unpretentious about it, like just the acoustic guitars and, and there's no click track. There's, it's all live. Mm. Like, I mean, live, you know, there's barely hardly any editing. It's, it's like, it's, it's very, very natural, you know what I mean? Which I really, I really like, but it, it wasn't what you would call a, you know, heavy rock album, but by, by any stretch. Right. So then we started doing heavier versions of some of the songs from last of the ghetto astronauts. I think that's why we wanted to re-record it so that we had sort of a new treatment of it. Oh, okay. But you can't really tell that much difference, really. You know, it's this, the same song, the same arrangement. Yeah. I don't know why we thought it would be so different. It, <laughs> it's just loud, basically. It's louder. You know, that's about it. Make me your freak And I will pack them in It's 
it's understandable And after all you're only human And all this time it's been killing me And all this time it's been Caving in my head Killing me Alive, alive, alive You're dead Slept in years Haven't talked to anybody else Haven't slept in years Haven't talked to And I will make you rich Will it still fashionable Isn't it, isn't it, isn't it And all this time it's been killing you And all this time it's been Caving in your head Killing you Alive, alive, alive You're dead Haven't slept in years Haven't talked to anybody else Haven't slept in years Haven't talked to So, um, Underdogs, we've talked about a little bit. So that's my favorite record of, of the four that you guys did. So I'm going to go deep on that record, if you don't mind. Um, what do you remember about um, coming in and arranging those songs that Matt would bring in? What do you remember the first kind of piece of music that would end up on the record that you guys started working on? You know, it, it's interesting because it's one of the only bands I ever played with where we were we were touring material before we recorded it. Mm. Like, we, we were playing it in front of audiences. Like, I think we had been playing uh, Apparitions live for a number of months. Like, you can see videos of us playing it, and there's, like, practically no reaction from the crowd because they've never heard it. So it's it's sort of funny that way. Like, I think it all 
he was just writing so much that we were just always learning new songs and it's hard to know when they came around. <laughs> right, like, yeah. You know, what, uh, as, as soon as Reagan was probably while we were recording Reagan, he had songs ready for underdogs. You huh. know what I mean? Like, I, I, I don't even, I don't even know. Things that he was excited about were like middle class gangsters. He really liked that one. Oh man, that is my favorite tune off the record, man. What do you remember about middle class gangsters? Anything you can give me on the recording or, or arranging of it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't remember. I, you know, the funny thing that I felt like is this is where our first record that we worked with Warren Lizzie. Right. So we were all really excited to work with him. And I, I was like very nervous around him. I just thought like this guy's like the biggest deal. Like, and uh, I'd, I'd listened to records that had gotten quite into records that he had produced in England. And so to meet him and we, I was just like, I'm going to defer to this guy anything that he wants me to do. <laughs> Right. You know, anything that he wants to do with the songs, you know, as far as the arrangement. And he did take the time to get in and, like, look at each song right. and look at the arrangement. And I know he made some adjustments, but he never did anything really crazy. Like, But the things that he did were really good. Like, he would kind of shorten one little turnaround by a bar or two just to make it a little more surprising. Like he, may have sh- he may have shortened a couple of sections just to make it so that then you can do a double chorus out kind of thing. Hmm. But I don't remember it being... He was so supportive of us and and me as a player. I was kind of surprised that he didn't produce me more, like, quote, unquote, like that he right, didn't right. kind of make me play certain things or get me to play to a click or get really get me to play a ton of takes and you know, this type of thing. But he was always just trying to, I think, I had so much energy. I was like, you know, 20, whatever, 22 years old or something oh, like goodness. that. And I, I think he was just capturing the energy coming off somebody that I just had so much passion and, and energy uh, for the drums that a lot of it is just like, you know, that first record, there's no click track. It's like, I think one of the songs is like, there's a, basically a full take like of, of drums on every record where they didn't huh. hit me. I just basically kind of play the whole song. But Warren, Warren was definitely like really sculpting it. Like he took the time to get into each song and really, focused on guitar parts and, you know, got our tones in order and everything. All of our sounds were really good. That song in particular is a total middle-class gangsters. I, I just, I just know that that was a, that was a real Coquitlam song for, for Matt. So he felt like this was sort of a, he, he was speaking to his, his upbringing basically in that suburb of Vancouver, you know, like, and I could relate to that. And because we had gone to the same high school, it always had that meaning for, for him that we had experienced that together so mm-hmm. and it's very literal i mean a lot of his songs talking kind of metaphor and stuff like that but that one's fairly literal as far as his lyric writing goes yeah that's true yeah i once i once told him i felt like his lyrics were a bit oblique I'm sure <laughs> how that, but uh, <laughs> but this this one is uh is for sure it's a, a definitely i agree it's more more literal and
more about the individual songs and how they came together. Like Indestructible is probably earlier was it probably one of the earliest ones. Right. Interesting. And that came off Jeff's baseline or probably actually. Yeah. Yeah, like I think that's right. I think that sounds like a Jeff song. It, it sounds like it's something that came from a Jeff riff. <laughs> Maybe onto something there. It's hard to know how this stuff because we jammed so much. Yeah. And we, you know, we would, and a lot of it was like I kind of felt at one point that it would be like we would we would kind of touch on something that we could play as a group, like a sound that we could make, like a certain kind of groove. Or you know, Matt was really just basically figuring out how to play electric guitar. Like Dave was sort of more of an accomplished musician. So Matt would be just slamming away on on an electric guitar, going crazy, and so that was a lot of the inspiration I think behind a lot of the the way these songs were was him just wanting that kind of very visceral feeling of playing the electric guitar with us and what we could do in big explosive downbeats and things like that. Yeah, so I kind of felt like we would jam something and we'd have a, we'd kind of establish a bit of a sound. We'd make something happen that was kind of cool. Like he would go away and almost write a song that kind of could make use of that sound. You know what I mean? Like so, a lot of it was sort of folding back on itself. Like mm-hmm. we you know, he, he, I felt like he started writing songs for the band at some point. Like it mm-hmm. wasn't just him as a writer in a room with an acoustic guitar anymore. It was like he had this vehicle, and so this was custom made stuff for us to be able to really, you know. Interesting. Sink our teeth into Yeah, I was watching an interview with him um, in preparation for this interview, and he had talked about his love for the Pixies and the love of um, everything comes from a bass drum root. I wonder if he kind of applied that to uh, you guys as well. Then. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I, I know, but we definitely were into the Pixies. There were really only a few records that we could fully agree that we all <laughs> liked. I, I was really into the police at the time, for better or worse. And you hear little smatterings of it. Little Stu Copeland. Stu Copeland, yeah. Who I mean, I still think he's very highly original. I still kind of do a couple of things that I feel like I got from him, but you oh. don't really necessarily want to emulate that guy for sure. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, like we were, we were later on became really into Radiohead, and because Radiohead was just kind of doing yeah. the most interesting, kind of most forward-looking type stuff. And but yeah, the Pixies, obviously, we you know we listened to that record a lot, and it was like almost. I think he was absolutely obsessed with um, Frank Black and mm. his lyric style. And I think I hear it more in the lyrics and the kind of flow of the words and things sometimes right. than I do about the music. Because the Pixies actually aren't really that. I mean, they're heavy, but they're not really a heavy band. They're not a heavy rhythm section band. Mm. They're yeah. sort of more like heavy guitars. But it's sort of interesting. And actually, we, we were trying to work with Gil Norton, who produced um, you know one of those oh, yeah. albums. But, um, yeah. We met him, actually. We met him backstage at, at I think, because one of the biggest things that we did, like, early on was that we opened for The Who. Oh, wow. Did you know this story? I do not. No, please. We, opened for, the, we opened for The Who two nights at wow. uh, what was GM Place. This was in, like, I think it probably was, like, 1997 or something, huh. you know? And I had never been to an arena rock show in my life. Like, wow. I've, I've had a couple of times where I almost had been to an arena rock show in my life. You know, I feel like if I'd ever gone to one of these things, it would have been impossible to play it. You know what I mean? Like, I, <laughs> cause I, I, I missed Joshua Tree, and then somebody invited me to go see John Cougar Mellencamp. I was like, I don't think I need to see that. You know? <laughs> I, did, I just, for some reason, I had never gone to an arena rock show. So wow. the next thing you know, we're opening for the freaking Who. You Amazing. know, it's like kind of crazy. And we were scared shitless, obviously. <laughs> it was just, 
you know, 20,000 people. I think the biggest crowd we ever played to, I think may have been like not even a thousand, like, you know, wow. and so then you're playing an arena and opening for these tight Titans of rock. And, you know, like they still had John Entwistle yeah. on bass and it was on the Quadrophenia tour. So they had Billy Idol wow. and, and uh, they were all on the tour. Anyway, so at one of those shows, Gil Norton came and we met him backstage. Huh. And he was supposed to record Underdogs. Wow. He was he was on deck to record Underdogs, and then he got pulled away to do like Color in the Shape or something. Like wow, Foo Fighters, amazing. And so then we, he recommended Warren Lindsay. Huh. And that's how we got Warren Lindsay. So back to this, uh, the Who though. Let's not skate completely over that. Was there any interaction between uh, you guys and the members or Billy Idol? Because I always I'm always fascinated about opening bands for like massive bands to see the interaction between between the two well we met roger daltrey who was uh very gracious very uh you know he he's known as being the sort of more down-to-earth guy oh, he, uh, Pete townsend i would have loved to have met Pete townsend and i think i might have kind of walked by him but he wasn't as, as engaging really mm. and he didn't seem to be as thrilled to be on that trip because <laughs> quadrophenia was done you know quadrophenia but they had it all to video and everything. And it was actually Zach Starkey was playing drums. Oh, wow. Ringo. So he came up during Soundcheck or he was checking huh. his drums while we were up there and stuff. So, but it was all on click track. Like it was all done to video sync and huh. they had, you know, all this stuff happening. So it wasn't as free as you would expect to see the who, you know what I mean? Like right. I, I was always a huge Keith Moon fan mm. and I felt like Zach Starkey, I mean, I'm a huge Ringo fan too, but Zach Starkey's nothing like his dad as far as the drummer goes. <laughs> A lot more kind of like regiment, or like a you know, kind of more of like a pro, what you'd expect a pro LA drummer to look like. Oh, you know, okay, kind of, right, yeah. Kind of like you know, it's a lot more, not quite as wild and organic sounding. It's a little more kind of precise and stuff. But I mean, Keith Moon, like you can't. Yeah. Nobody could really. I, I kind of always surprised me that they didn't get somebody that could at least do a bit of a Keith thing. But they always went with these real kind of LA type guys. Yeah. You know. Anyway, so it was kind of weird. Agreed. But yeah. uh, but you know, I just remember John Entwistle. That guy. I, I didn't realize how good a bass player he was, and at the time, huh. like I'm watching him, like his fingers were literally a blur. Like, wow. And it, it it's like I just like later on became totally like there's some videos of isolated audio of him just playing the bass. Huh. At a Who show, and it's it's you should look this up. It's just like it's incredible. Like just listening to just his bass is like wow. incredible. But yeah, we didn't really have much of an interaction. I think we met Roger. He's he's like he's kind of a little guy. Like he's not super tall or anything. Like, <laughs> and uh, just a super nice guy with yeah. like a real kind of working class British accent, and you know, nice. just and uh, kind of said hello. But we didn't really have any kind of real no photo ops or. Uh... I don't think so. I don't think anybody. Uh, maybe Matt got a photo. I'm not really quite sure. So, um, I'm always fascinated with the cover art for Underdogs. That's all Matt. I mean, Matt yeah. really always had a really strong idea of what he wanted on the covers. Sometimes I didn't quite get it. Like I always kind of thought Beautiful Midnight wasn't really all the. I, I never got that. But but Underdogs, I think he had a really distinct idea that it was basically kind of like it was you know middle class gangsters. Like it was like. Kind of a high school, an ode to high school, and right, right. You know, like it was his. Uh, that that that's really the and so that the the photo on the front is basically like a graduation photo, right? Yeah, like a prom thing. Yeah, from a prom. Yeah. Right. So 
Uh, I think that's basically where it came from. And and, and we know the people in the in the oh, photo, or at least somebody somebody knows the people. Yeah, like there's there's a connection there. I can't remember what it is, but yeah, that's part of my curiosity. Was I was wondering if it was like a stock photo or something that you guys had done for the album. That's interesting. No, that was that was shot for the cover oh, nice. of the album. It was, it was, it was like, even the guy with with his mouth open, that was Matt's idea. Like that was, he had a vision in his mind of the pose of the guy, of the people with their heads, with their eyes, you know, the cut off of the eyes. That was his concept. And then as far as all the other artwork in the thing, it's all um, art department from A&M or whatever, whatever label we were on at the time. They they always, I think all those photos are actually taken in LA. Those were taken as part of a private um, photo shoot, I think, actually. So with Underdogs, the second record, like you said, you now have A&M and kind of polygram machine behind you, bigger budget, bigger producer, right in the middle of the 90s when the Canadian alternative rock scene, I mean, all over the world, but specifically in Canada, was really exploding. Um, Did you guys now kind of feel part of that with like the making of higher budget music videos and getting more press and getting on Toronto radio for the first time that you'd worked hard for on the first record? Yeah, absolutely. And once we got Toronto radio... And then, um, however, it came to pass that we ended up starting to kind of like, I think we were, you know, A&M and the labels were very reluctant to get on board because I think we were sort of an unusual group. It was like a weird name and weird looking group. And But uh, yeah, I mean, I just I just remember we, we flew to Toronto to make a video for Symbolistic White Walls, which was not on Toronto radio, but... but at the time, like, you know, videos were so expensive to make. Right. If you could make a video for 20 grand, that was a deal. <laughs> yeah. And that's in 90s money, right? So, right, exactly. So we flew to Toronto, we did the video, and you can see it. And then, but yeah, we, we got in, we were there for much music when it was like just coming into its own, really, and really starting to really, you know, and it was like Denise Donlin, mm-hmm. who was like still one of the most incredible. You know, I think I just was nervous to meet her. She was the most powerful woman in the yeah, Canadian legend. Industry. She's one of the most powerful people in the Canadian music industry. Absolutely. She could make or break your career. So <laughs> yeah. if she liked you, then you know you would get on the countdown and like, and then you'd kind of get. And and then also the videos had to be good too, and the songs had to be good and that kind of thing. But I'm not sure how we how we managed to get in. Oh, yeah, I think it was probably Bill Morrison. Like we made that connection to huh. Bill Morrison, who was a local guy that had worked with like skinny puppy. He was more known as like an industrial kind of dude. And, uh, he made the video for everything is automatic. And that, that was probably done on basically a shoestring for the time. Like it was, it was, it was done with early kind of green screen type stuff. Right. 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 Yeah. These, these first videos I think ended up being very good for what we paid for them. And then they did actually get some traction on much music. And then that gave us the ability to like get a bit more, probably, you know, EMI publishing was probably splitting the bill with label. And so then we could ask for a little more kind of thing. And so I think basically, I think when we did the video for load me up, I think that cost 80 grand. Wow. That, that one and it was it was the um the dop was the the guy that shot uh phenomenon by oh, really? cool that's a great video yeah wow yeah load me up the one with all the water and the kids running and you guys are getting soaked yeah and... yeah exactly yeah that's right yeah so lots of water shots and you know i think it's all, they're all shot on film hmm. <laughs> it's kind of crazy 
So yeah, they were expensive. When you think about it now, like think you think spending eighty grand on a music video. I mean, it seems yeah, outrageous. Exactly. It is yeah. outrageous. You mentioned automatic there. Were you um, surprised that was the first signal, first single out the gate for that record? Because I mean, the record is chock full of could have been number one singles. You know, were you uh, surprised that was a choice? Yeah. Which one do you think should have been? Which one do you think it should have been first? I mean, it's a good one, but Deep Six or Out of Style, I think, is uh, right. is just as strong as I, automatic. You know, I feel like my Out of Style, my Out of Style didn't turn out as well as it should have. No, I think I think I kind of didn't. I didn't feel totally happy with my own. You know, I, I feel like that one should have turned out better. But uh, I, I guess, like you know, there's sort of a general feeling that you should lead off with an upbeat song. Right, right. And Deep Six is just such a. It's a bit wild. Like yeah, it's, it's kind of like straining at the leash or something. You know? <laughs> uh, it's, it's like, I like it. And I, there was some talk. I wasn't there for the mix of some of this stuff too. Like they, Dave and Matt went to England with Warren to mix it. Oh, and wow. it, it always bugged me that like, you know, like things would come back and I'd be like, God, it just sounds like the drums are just tiny back there. Like, mm. you know, they've taken their guitars are huge and the, I mean, in hindsight, now when I listen to it, it doesn't it doesn't sound that way. But at the time, I was like, "What the hell? You buried me, put me way back there." And Deep right. Six, especially, it's just like um, I felt like it was more like more like a drum song, really. Hmm. That, of course, I would think that you know, back <laughs> in those twenty two years old. Right, right. Uh, but uh, yeah, I guess like everything is automatic. I think was probably the right choice. You know, yeah. like it's it's exciting. It's kind of terse. It, it's got some. It's a bit dark. It's a bit mysterious. And probably more imagery deep six is a little bit more balls to the wall out of style is a little bit too slow to yeah that's off. fair yeah I, I think like so where did it go it went it went it went automatic and then it went what, what indestructible i think and oh, then, indestructible yeah, 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 see, three, yeah then, that, uh, i really like that that video actually that one turned out really good actually indestructible that one defied expectations yeah mm-hmm. that one did better than anybody thought it would
I mean, one thing we didn't touch on was um, Dave Gann becoming now a full-fledged member of the band and working. Did you um, see that kind of relationship between him and Matt develop on working out those under- underdogs songs? Did you kind of see his Im- imprint on the band becoming more prevalent? Yeah, I mean, Dave kind of filled in a lot of stuff that needed to be filled in a lot mm. with the guitars and things. Like, he kind of added a bit of a harmonic depth. You know, like, if Matt was playing a certain chord, Dave would play all the notes that Matt wasn't playing. You know, he kind of added a lot of the color. Mm. So that was one of the things. But then also, like, Dave really kind of wasn't really fully sure he wanted to be a full-fledged member of the band. So Matt kind of was always negotiating and trying to kind of, you know, and I think Dave basically also always had a very good um, business sense and knew how to make money in the music industry. And one of them is to get on songwriting, songwriting credits, right? Yeah, exactly. So he he kind of, uh, he knew what he was doing, Dave, and and he still is much, much more astute in that area than I am. So, you know, but he's also, he was the right guy for Matt to be working with in that way. Like, you know, they, they, they kind of had to figure out, you know, Dave was, was basically filling in a lot of of spaces where it wouldn't have been as interesting, you know, like without that, that chord, that, that, you know, some of the, um, the picking parts that he does with the arpeggiating, like everything is automatic. Perfect example, you know, like, Kind of unusual picking patterns and things that kind of make it what it is. It makes up the song what it is. I'm not even really sure he has a writing credit on that one, but and like I say, sometimes the writing credits get a little weird because they don't really reflect what what I think the input was, what the input level was, and then you know it's like and but yeah, I think that basically like Dave started to find a sound that worked with Matt, and that became a huge part of his own sound, and then it also was hugely a huge part of the band as well, like. That, that we had a guy that could kind of work around the thing that Matt was doing on the guitar, you know, play the sort of the contrasting part. You mentioned um, like writing credits, so we've uh, talked about it uh, a couple times in this conversation, but um, as the band became more successful, did that issue pop up more as an issue of contention, like the kind of splits? I don't think we ever really complained, but it, it became more of an issue when, you know, we thought we were a band and right. then Matt decided basically, uh, like, it was like ownership of the master of underdogs, I think is the thing that really, is that right? I think was really the kind of shitty, the shittiest thing hmm. because, you know, nobody could argue that Matt was the primary writer. Like we were never going to be writing songs for the Matt Good Band, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So, and Dave had already kind of established himself as being the, the sort of right hand man in that department. And in hindsight, I don't really think it was that terrible that he kind of gave us a little slice of, of a song every record. It seems totally fair, mm-hmm. but it would have been nice to have been able to share in the success of Underdogs, where we really did kind of, that was really a band album where we really, none of us got paid, none of us mm-hmm. had gotten paid to that point. And so we felt like we had some ownership, like it, we'd kind of been led to believe that this is something that we shared ownership in. And then when he decided that was not the case, that was a huge bone of contention. That, mm-hmm. you know, and that and the fact that he basically kind of, like we were signed to Atlantic and the States, and Matt kind of just basically sabotaged it, more or less. And, and so then I think Dave was like, could see the writing on the wall that we weren't going to make a real push to be a U.S. Uh, touring 
radio project, which we definitely had the opportunity to do. And that was with uh, Beautiful Midnight, or was that still in Underdogs? Yeah, they took tracks from yeah they took tracks from Underdogs and Beautiful Midnight, and they compiled a U.S. album mm. of those of the best songs of those two records, basically, in their estimation. And yeah, we were on Atlantic, and uh, they were gonna push us like we were supposed to go on tour with um, Mashbox Twenty, and oh, this wow. has been like. 1999 or something. <laughs> they were just getting big. They weren't even at their biggest point. And this is not including Nickelback or whatever, Rob Thomas. Right, right. Just Xbox 20. But we were supposed to open a 30 date tour in the States for Mashbox 20. And uh, we were going to also open two Canadian dates, like Toronto and Vancouver. Hmm. And Matt said, no way. Like, we're bigger than Matchbox 20 in Vancouver and Toronto. Wow. So he basically said, no, it was a whole tour without consulting any of us. Wow. Because of uh, the kind of like a, it's sort of like a, well, it's a dumb reason, you know. Yeah. <laughs> didn't look up here like we were going to be a smaller band in our own market, you know, or, or whatever, you know, which is ridiculous. Nobody would ever think that really, or, you know, who cares kind of thing. But then in, in, in yeah, we if we had done that 30 days, tour of the U.S., I think we probably would have had a record go gold, wow. you know, like, or at least it's hard to know exactly, mm-hmm. but we were probably on par sort of musically and as a stage presentation on par with Matchbox 20. I, I, I mean, I'm, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, pumping us up too much, but I think we probably could have gone toe to toe with Matchbox 20 as a, as a, oh, absolutely, as a, yeah. as a music on stage, you know what I mean? Absolutely. So, uh, we we probably that may, may have made our lives a lot different if we had, if we had done that trip and then uh, after that that's when it really started to unravel because I think it was like okay well what are we doing here we're just basically going to be a big fish in a little pond you know mm-hmm. and be a Canadian you know like kind of like a tribe to the hip or something which I mean we had that opportunity to go down to the states when we were really firing on all cylinders and to not take that opportunity was like sort of a bit of a head scratcher. So when something like that happens and one person makes kind of a widespread decision for the band, uh, what is that next conversation like? Does he come in and kind of explain his reasoning behind it? Or any of you guys just kind of biting your tongue for the betterment of the uh, the band? I mean, I think it was starting to get pretty acrimonious. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, he, he, he was always, you couldn't really, I mean, nobody even at the label or, or the managers or anybody could, could tell him what he should or shouldn't do. I mean, there was one of the good things about him. One of the things I still kind of marvel at was that he kind of just, he would just basically just hold his ground and the doors would swing open. Like it was, Hmm. it was crazy. I've never seen anything like it. Like, you know, he didn't, he never really negotiated. If he had a real sense of how something it should be, he would never, he wouldn't negotiate. And then sure enough, they, they would acquiesce. And then, and it just got to the point where, you know, you couldn't argue with them. You couldn't reason with them. You know, it's like, it was his show and we were all just on the train, you know what I mean? So right. when he started making bad decisions, it started, started kind of like going like, okay, well, you know, then, then I guess then you have to start to kind of, you know, kind of question your own involvement in it, which is what I think Dave did basically. Right. And then also I think Matt basically said, well, Hey, why do I have a band if it's just me doing all the writing? Hmm. And people were in his ear basically saying like, well, you know, you should, this is a solo project, basically. Yeah. You should be a solo project. And then, then when you go on tour, you can keep 90% of the money rather than right. have to split yeah. it, you 
those types of things. So I think it, a lot of it came like down to the financial things, and and you know it it became pretty clear that we you know he was it wasn't really all that fun a lot of the time, and it wasn't like a band of brothers or of really close friends or something like that we come together as a as a professional group. So I don't think he felt like any real you know allegiance really after a certain point like that we'd kind of had our time and then now he was going to go solo thank you so much for joining us today on raven drool if you're interested in supporting the podcast you can do so in a variety of ways first you can go to patreon.com slash rave drool become a patron get access to deleted audio get advanced notes of the guests and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive patreon q a Visit redbubble.com, search Rave Drool, and you can buy various goods with the Raven Drool podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to this. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more 90s Karen Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Until next time, friends, take care. Stop!